Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast from Kentucky Humanities. Along with podcast lineups uh, that include always writers and historians, musicians, artists, and as you know, many others, we also like to introduce you to some of the dedicated men and women who serve on our board of directors. Today's guest is Luanna Redcorn of Lexington. Luanna is a lawyer and just wrapped up a career as the Fayette County Commonwealth's attorney, spending many years in that office uh, prosecuting cases and working on a number of issues that uh, we'll talk to her about today. She is also a citizen of the Osage Nation in Oklahoma, and we will talk about that too. Luanna, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you, uh, just a few months ago, decided that uh, this was a time in your life to take a, a left or right-hand turn and get off of the, uh, the maddening uh, train of, um, of what you've been doing for most of your adult life, and, and you've decided to do something else, and that's, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that for right now. It might not be anything except some volunteerism and serving on boards and uh, working uh, in the Osage Nation in Oklahoma. But uh, let's kind of start at the beginning and, uh, and talk about you a little bit and, and talk about your, your growing up uh, in Kentucky primarily, I think, and, uh, and uh, school and uh, how you uh, became a lawyer. Well, uh, Bill, as you pointed out, I just retired uh, in the end of September of 2022 after uh, 37 years in the Fayette Commonwealth Attorney's Office, uh, working as a line prosecutor, later as the deputy to Commonwealth Attorney Ray Larson, and then appointed and elected as Commonwealth Attorney in this county. And during that time, just tell me a little bit about your daily activities, working with uh, our good friend and someone that we miss dearly, uh, Ray Larson. Yes. Well, the Fayette Commonwealth Attorney's Office prosecutes felony cases here in Fayette County, uh, which, Bill, people may or may not know, are crimes that you can get a year or more in the penitentiary for or the death penalty. So that office prosecutes um, all of those cases. They come to uh, the office, and they're assigned to prosecutors, and I prosecuted many of them. Uh, Most cases don't go to trial which is what most people think of when they think of a prosecutor as a trial lawyer, but most of the cases don't go to trial. But if they did, um, those cases were tried in the Fayette Circuit Court. And before that, though, you spent a little time as a public defender. Is that correct? And, and so the difference in a public defender and a prosecutor is what? Well, the public defender is a person who represents uh, individuals that are charged with crimes who cannot afford a lawyer. And the United States, uh, through case law, through case law and through the Constitution, says that if a person is charged with a felony, which I've already explained a year or more, then you're entitled to representation. And if you can't afford a lawyer, the state will appoint a lawyer for you. That way we make sure that everybody gets what's called due process under the law. And I worked as a public defender shortly after I graduated from law school. 
I worked primarily uh, in eastern Kentucky. It was, a, it was a very interesting and exciting time for me early in my career. Uh, I worked, lived in Powell County and worked in Powell, Wolf, and Breathitt, and then also Lee, Owsley, and Beatty. Or, uh, Probably Lee, some Owsley of the, and, uh, certainly the poorest counties in Kentucky, if not uh, poorest in the United States. Yes, yes. So there was certainly a great need um, for, for help. Do a lot of young lawyers getting out of school that don't go to a, um, a law firm right out of school, do, do, they, do they go into public uh, Public law, uh, defense. Yeah, well, into just into public law, mm-hmm. I think in general, and and I would, I'm going to kind of guess about this, but I have the feeling that in the last many years, uh, lots of inter- lots of young people graduating from law school have are looking for uh, positions that really give them a lot of personal satisfaction and contribute to the well-being of society. That is certainly not to say that attorneys that go into private practice and represent individuals and corporations don't do that. Um, But there is something, I think, uh, unique about helping an individual, whether that individual is a person that's charged with a crime or helping a crime victim who's been the victim of a crime. So it's very uh, satisfying, not particularly high-paying, but a satisfactory um, way of practicing law. Do you remember some of the cases that you uh, you tried or represented uh, as a public defender and uh, how strikingly different uh, than maybe uh, either what you learned in law school or uh, ones that you uh, then later uh, prosecuted as a Commonwealth attorney? Uh, that's a, a good question. I have a, a little quick story to share with you, Bill. Um, my first felony case in uh, eastern Kentucky was a woman that was charged with shooting her husband. She didn't kill him, thankfully, but charged with shooting her husband, and she lived in uh, Alza County, Boonville, which was at the time probably the poorest county in Kentucky. And uh, I um, I won't say her name because she was acquitted of shooting her husband. That means found not guilty. But in preparing for the case, I went to her home and she lived in a home that had a dirt floor and no indoor plumbing. And I, I had never been in a home like that before. And uh, so it was an experience for me, obviously, um, and very different than what I had known. And, and um, I think it enriched me in many, many ways to be able to, to work with her and to get, in my mind, to get her justice because she was acting in, in defense of her uh, minor son when she shot her husband. So do you find more of those cases, and this is a, a, a gross generalization, uh, but do you find more of those cases in eastern Kentucky than you would in the urban areas of our Commonwealth? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think you'd probably have to look at the data, but my, I think, anecdotal experience would be that those kinds of things, especially that particular case, which was domestic in nature, occur probably equally all over the Commonwealth. So this was good work, uh, gave you a good um, feeling um, sometimes uh, yes. at night after, I would imagine after this case for sure, but you left there um, and sort of switched sides of the street, if you will. Um, <laughs> yes. 
Well, you know Why? what Ray Larson used to say, um, if you want to be uh, a real public defender, be a prosecutor. <laughs> uh, and so, yes, so I came to Lexington, moved back to Lexington after having been here for college and law school and had the good fortune of being hired by Ray and working with him then for the rest of my professional career until I became Commonwealth's attorney. And what was the real reason, the motivation um, to, to move back other than maybe you wanted to, to, to leave the rural area and come back to a city? Uh, uh, or did you have any qualms at all about deciding that public defense, uh, public lawyering wasn't uh, something that, that you had in mind when you were in law school? No, I, I enjoyed it. But I really feel like for me, uh, I, I honestly believe that people kind of lean one way or the other in terms of whether they feel like they um, want to be a public defender or, or and represent people in that way or be a prosecutor. And uh, in my mind, I felt like I could do more good working on behalf of um, public safety for me than I could one individual at a time. Besides prosecuting cases, and you have uh, defined uh, felony cases for us, uh, tell us about what else you did in the and what other Commonwealth attorneys do in that office and, and how important it is to uh, a, a county and how they contribute to the law enforcement uh, throughout uh, a region. Right. Well, as I said, it's not really just about trying cases. In fact, that's a very small uh, part of what we did. Most cases are resolved through guilty plea. But in a, in a place like Lexington and Louisville, probably northern Kentucky too, the prosecutor has, I think, a much greater responsibility than they might have out in the state, although they have tremendous responsibility out in the state. But in an urban area, there are uh, issues I think are probably unique to urban areas. Um, so we spent, when I was Commonwealth's attorney and when Ray was Commonwealth's attorney, a lot of time working with our law enforcement partners no, no one group can do this work alone. Obviously, it takes everybody. And when I say law enforcement partners, I'm talking about other prosecutors' offices like the Fayette County Attorney's Office, um, the United States Attorney's Office, sometimes the Kentucky Attorney General's Office. And law enforcement is done not just by the Lexington Police Department, but by federal investigators, for example, the FBI and the ATF, um, also the uh, Fayette County Sheriff's Office, the Kentucky State Police, and, and sometimes the Attorney General's Office. So all of these organizations together uh, really work to keep Lexington safe. And so that's part of the prosecutor's responsibility, being working closely with other organizations. Before you became a Commonwealth's attorney, before you were appointed to that position, um, and um, tell me about the work that, that led up to that. Did, did you do, um, when you first joined the office, and then the, you spent many years there before you got the top job, mm -hmm. were you doing everything uh, to learn what, um, how to direct the other lawyers in the office? So tell me a little bit about yeah. that. Well, we all do everything to start, right? That's how we become well-rounded and, and know how to do our jobs. But I did do a fair amount of focus on issues involving children. Uh, so I was with Ray when the Children's Advocacy Center of the Bluegrass, which is a nonprofit that um, helps, brings together all of the agencies that intervene when there are allegations of child sexual abuse. So I've worked on that board 
um, and worked in that field a lot. I did a fair amount of work um, with the state in writing our protocol, the state protocol on child sexual abuse, multidisciplinary teams. I worked, um, another prosecutor in our office and I wrote a manual for the attorney general's office on how to prosecute child sexual abuse cases. And then I had the um, good fortune of being appointed to the National Children's Alliance, which is the national organization that accredits children's advocacy centers and served as president for that organization uh, for three years. So um, I've had a strong focus on children. Um, You know, children are our most important resource and the protection of children and making sure that when when bad things do happen to them, to give them justice, just like adults get justice, and uh, the power to heal. What are your reflections on where Kentucky is or was when you were active, uh, and you may still be quite active in some of those organizations, uh, reflections on where Kentucky stands as far as child abuse cases and um, uh, are there more incidences here than there are in, let's just say, the surrounding southern states? I think that um, we've all seen in the newspapers that Kentucky doesn't do particularly well uh, compared to other states. Why is that? I, I don't know, Bill. I don't know that I can give you a definitive answer. Um, certainly things I think that help in, the, in those regards are... Um, coordinated investigations, resources uh, going to people that do that work, and then resources upstream. Uh, so you, you've heard the, um, the stories about, you know, if you really want to see what the problem is with the drinking water, look upstream because the, uh, prevention is every bit as important, mm-hmm. if not more important, than intervention. And so I don't know... If we knew the, the real answer, the answer, the hard answer to that question, I think we would have done it long before now to solve it. But certainly I think resources to keeping families um, functioning healthy in a healthy way are ways to reduce incidents that children experience. Did you see another state or region that you wanted to model or that you thought uh, might be taking the right steps that you would like to apply to Kentucky? Well, not in that the general, the, the general way that you're speaking, but I, as I mentioned with the Children's Advocacy Center, there are at least, I think, uh, for all of us, smaller ways in which we could make changes. And that's what we did here in Fayette County. We were the leader and, you know, Ray was a big part of that, although I did Ray was the brains and I was the brawn in in terms of getting things done. Um, And that was making sure that child sexual abuse investigations were done with a multidisciplinary approach, Uh, that children that were sexually abused and had to talk about it had one or two interviews and and did it in a place that was safe and non-institutional. And, um, and didn't have to tell the story at the health department and at the social services offices and at the police department. So things like that, while they may not be big and global, uh, many small things can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 
Cosair for Kids, a charity in uh, Louisville uh, and in Kentucky, uh, does such great work in this space. And uh, they're a partner of ours. Kentucky Youth Advocates uh, has done such wonderful work uh, in this area, too, in their Face It campaign. Um, Cosair's uh, goal is to completely zero out child abuse uh, by a certain uh, period of time, um, which is now. Um, Do you think that'll ever happen? No, Um, but I think great strides can be made to reduce it. I think that as long as um, children are raised by adults and all of us um, have issues, uh, some more than others, that it's it's going to be, uh, it's an admirable goal, and I think we should work towards that. And just because I don't think it won't happen is no reason not to do it. Well, good response. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking to Luanna Redcorn. Uh, she is uh, our Kentucky Humanities uh, Board of Directors member, uh, a, um, a lawyer uh, by trade. I hate to use the word Retired, but she's just <laughs> taking a leave. How about that? That's Maybe we'll use that. Repurposing. Uh, refiring, Bill. I'm refiring, refiring. Refiring. And she's also a member of the Osage Nation uh, doing some work in Oklahoma, where her uh, generations of her forefathers and mothers are. And we'll talk to her about that right after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University. Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing offers one-on-one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. Luana, since we've known you um, and you are, um, I say very proudly, the first Native American that we have uh, as a member of our board of directors at Kentucky Humanities, Um, And I I say proudly, but also uh, it's a long time coming, as they also say. We should have done this um, many years ago here at Kentucky Humanities, but we didn't. And so we move on. uh, And we're so glad that that you are involved with us and will help us and guide us and suggest to us how we can uh, uh, be uh, better citizens uh, to uh, our Native American brothers and sisters across uh, the world. Um, tell me your, your heritage, tell me about your interest, tell me about uh, the Osage Nation, which is uh, something that uh, all of us need to know more about and have a, uh, more of an interest. And it seems like to me, uh, is there a resurgence in, the, in, in people's knowledge or at least their curiosity about Native Americanism? I, I feel like there is, Bill. I really do. I think that we, uh, the more we know, obviously, about anything is a good thing. Uh, I also think that we are, in some ways, kind of coming to grips with uh, what we've done uh, to other groups of people over the years in this country and what, what happened with uh, Native Americans, um, 
since the time that this country was founded, I think, is being reexamined. And we're, you know, kind of realizing that um, what we read in the history books is only a fraction of what happened. And we do hear and see this debate today about what we see in in the history books. And particularly um, for some, uh, it is about African-Americans and uh, what uh, is to be believed and not to be believed. Um, That same, you're telling me, uh, thought process is sometimes covered up or not being told or the truth is not being revealed about Native Americans and the plight that they suffered and that that part of our the history of the United States uh, was just not uh, uh, historically accurate for so many many years. Uh, I'm saying, yeah, I think I'm I'm kind of saying that, Bill. Certainly, it's incomplete. Um, that might be the That's a the, con- way to the put kinder it. way to to yeah. say it is that it is incomplete, and I think we all have to recognize that. You know, who, who writes the history is generally the person that's in charge. That's not a bad thing. That's just a thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Natives certainly were not in charge of the writing of the history. They may have told it differently uh, or more completely. While we're talking about that, I want to kind of give a little pitch here for the Osage Nation and what's going on with us right now. Uh, in 19, or excuse me, 2017, uh, a man named David Grand wrote a book called Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, it is about the Osage Nation, the birth of the FBI, and uh, Martin Scorsese is turned it into a movie, which is being uh, pr- premiered at the Cannes Festival in France this week. Hmm. So many of my Osage brothers and sisters and relatives uh, are over there for the premiere of the movie. I bring this up because it does tell some of the history of the Osage, not the 1800s history specifically, but some of the consequences of what happened in the 1800s as it relates to the uh, move to the reservation, um, the enrollment of Indians on the Dawes Act, and the discovery of oil. So um, things like that books and movies that are based on facts, because this was a non-fiction book that David Grand wrote. I mean, mm-hmm. he went into the archives of history and, mm-hmm. and looked at this. That, those are the things that I think people are interested in, and in reading that book, and pretty soon, um, hopefully in the fall of this year, watching that movie, mm-hmm. if it's not entertaining to people, and I'm sure it's going to be, it will at least be enlightening to them to know about something that happened to a group of people in history that is not in the history books, and and people don't know anything about it. And these things didn't just happen to the Osage. It was to other nations, too. When did you learn about your heritage? When I was born. <laughs> when I was born. I mean, my mom and uh, dad are both from Osage County, which is where the Osage Nation headquarters are located there in the reserve. And um, so we've always been involved uh, culturally um, with our Osage people. It's just that it's a little harder to do when you live 700 miles away. And how are you able to strengthen those ties today? Well, that's a big uh, part of my reason for leaving my position as Commonwealth's attorney. I mean, I loved that work. Um, I felt like I was doing something very important. 
but I'm still at a point in my life where I can do something that is in many ways much closer to my heart and certainly closer to my family, and that is to renew my relationships in in Osage County with the Osage Nation and to spend time there and, if I can help, um, out there to help. What are the the positive elements of the Osage Nation as well as other Native American uh, regions that we uh, might recite or, or, or know of? Because a lot of times we've all grown up with uh, this uh, negative connotation and picture of of uh, Indians, mm-hmm. um, and not only uh, going back to Westerns and what happened in the, the wild, wild West, but today with uh, so many problems that do occur on reservations, some I'm sure are uh, certainly true with uh, the problems that, that all people have, regardless mm-hmm. of their ethnicity. Uh, but but what, where's the, where does the truth lie? And, and what is the health um, and well-being of the Osage Nation in, in Oklahoma? Well, I think it's important for um, all of us t- to know that um, Native Americans, Indians, uh, are alive and well. And and f- functioning within their culture and their governments, just as non-Natives function in a culture and a government, the the... I'm a big believer that it's good that we're all, not all alike. Um, there is a richness uh, in the world when we are diverse and different, and we can share those diversities and differences with one another. And to be associated with any group of people, I think, um, is important. And, and retaining and maintaining a culture is as important. So... You ask about the health of the Osage Nation. You know, we never had a written language. Um, It was always oral. And now we have our own orthography. Um, There's a resurgence of the language, which is so important to a group of people. Uh, The Osage Nation has a school. We have a school. And uh, Osage children attend this school. I think they can go to the sixth grade. I'm not 100% sure about that. Mm -hmm. And the language is taught in there every day. Uh, We are um, working hard to be sovereign with a butcher house and um, our own herd and our own uh, farms and gardening. And, of course, our our culture, our our, uh, enlonchka, which is our ceremonial dance that we do every year. And um, and in relationships and ways, so those things are all important factors in the health of anybody. I mean, those are buffers to, as you were describing, the tragedies that many Indian nations have faced over the years, and and that is alcoholism and suicide and domestic violence. Uh, those things are usually more prolific mm-hmm. in Indian nations than they are in the, mm-hmm. in the um, general population. population. Yes. Mm-hmm. But those things I've just described, especially culture, are great buffers and protective factors mm-hmm. to those things. What's it like for you to go home? To Oklahoma? 
Uh, well, first of all, it's a beautiful country. If you've never been to northeastern Oklahoma and you get a chance to go, do. I mean, it's, it's very much like Kentucky. Uh, maybe not quite as green, not many types of trees, but to drive in there, you know, when I cross the county line and it says you are entering the Osage Nation, my heart just feels lighter. Um, it's in, in my heart, I feel like it's a place that I belong. Um, I hope one day I will be back there permanently. That's no time soon, uh, but someday. And um, and to participate in the tribal things that that I just couldn't by by being far away, and it just it agrees, brings me great joy. Um, if you would uh, teach me, uh, advise our listeners on some um, political correctness, if you will, because I've heard it both ways, and and I've uh, we've always tried at Kentucky Humanities to to use the right language and and speak uh, the truth, of course. Um, that for a while we were using Native American with uh, every time that we were replacing Indian with, with Native American. And are, are they interchangeable words that aren't offensive to, to, to Native Americans? <laughs> or or is, it, uh, is, it, is one pro- more proper than the other? Well, first of all, Bill, you know, I don't speak for all Natives out there. And, and so we're not like anything individuals and probably individual groups of individuals have what they would prefer. I would say, in general, Native American is preferred over American Indian. I think American Indian, while it is still used, is, uh, is less uh, agreeable than, mm-hmm. than Native American. And the word that most Natives may refer to themselves as Indians but I think probably Native American is the best way to refer. If you're trying to mm-hmm. just be, um, as you said, just to, to say it in a way that is less likely to offend, mm-hmm. uh, that's the way to say it, right. Native or Native American. Okay. Um, secondly, uh, f- currently and for a period of time uh, not in the not-too-distant uh, past, there were... Um, any introduction by a humanities scholar or an academic um, or could be anybody in the general population would be to identify the land which uh, uh, one's office or school or home mm-hmm. uh, rests on would be the land, the original land that the Native American um was housed on mm-hmm. or was uh, a native the, the ancestral of. lands. Ancestral mm-hmm. lands. Yes. And uh, then shortly after that, in fact, uh, we did some research here and, and we know uh, to some degree, although it probably would take some more uh, research, uh, where our office in Lexington uh, is and, and what the ancestral land, how you would introduce that if you do it in, either in writing or uh, do it at the beginning of a board meeting or uh, when you have a, a group into our office. Um, but then, not too long after that, I heard that that in itself is sometimes offensive to some Native Americans. I, I don't know, Bill. I don't know. I mean, I like I said, I can't speak for what, what some people think is right or some people think is wrong. Uh, to me, the 
you know, whether you do it or not, um, the benefit of doing it is it acknowledges someone else was here. Uh, and that's really all I think that we all need to do is to just continue to learn and acknowledge and be mindful that, you know, we just, uh, we weren't the first ones. And I say we, cause you know, my mom was Dutch Irish. She wasn't born here. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some people like it and some people don't like it. I will say, though, that I recently learned that um, I was at, the, at an event where the Osage were acknowledged in a land acknowledgement being here in Kentucky. And so I talked to a woman over at the uh, Heritage Council who works for the state. Her name is Tressa Brown, very knowledgeable woman. And I asked her, you know, when did Osage uh, get involved in the land acknowledgements? And she said that there had been some recent... Um, findings from uh, oral histories that the Osage may have been here. So uh, she was very kind, and she welcomed me home at the end of the conversation. Well, that's wonderful, and, and it must have made you feel real good. That, well, it did. Uh, it did. You don't have to go all the way to Oklahoma, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, Luanna Redcorn, thanks so much for uh, taking the time and to talk about some personal matters here. This is not something that we usually do on the Think Humanities podcast, uh, but uh, I've enjoyed it and hope you have too. And yeah. We're so glad that you're a member of uh, the board and, and will continue to help us and guide us and uh, give us some advice here and there. Uh, we appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Bill. I'm so glad to be here. I appreciate it, too. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.